the nation's capital. This is D.C. Public Safety. I'm your host, Leonard Sipes. Today, ladies and gentlemen, parole and probation officers and their contributions to public safety. We're celebrating pretrial probation and parole supervision week in conjunction with the American Probation and Parole Association and their motto, A Force for Positive Change. Uh, these individuals come from my agency, the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency. By our microphones today, we have Caitlin Forche, a supervisory community supervision officer. We have J.B. Thompson, a community supervision officer, and we have Jasmine St. John, again, a community supervision officer, and to Caitlin, and to Jamie, and to Jasmine. Welcome to D.C. Public Safety. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. In a world where there's just a ton of media and television shows about police officers, and I used to be one, um, there's only one that I'm aware of, and that's, I think, A&E's Pitbull and Parolee. So there's really not a lot of publicity about parole and probation agents. Now, we call you community supervision officers. That's D.C.'s term for parole and probation agents. Uh, But parole and probation agents throughout the country, community supervision officers, you guys are in the front line. Out of the 7 million people under correctional supervision, five are the responsibility of yourselves, people like you and your counterparts throughout the United States. So when you talk about corrections in this country, the vast majority of the people are under the supervision of parole and probation agents. Um, How does that make you feel? That's an awesome responsibility, is it not? It is an awesome responsibility, but it's also an awesome opportunity. Okay. And we have a lot of a lot of resources here in D.C. We have a lot of great people working to make a difference in people's lives. So, you know, they come to us for for whatever reason it happens to be, um, with their risks and with their needs, and and we have the opportunity to help them to make them make them more productive members of society, um, which not only makes them better, but, you know, makes them available for their families more, makes them uh, contribute to society in a more positive light. So it's a huge responsibility, but it's also a great opportunity. We have people, a large and significant percentage of our caseload have mental health problems, have substance abuse problems. Um, A lot of them have not had a long job history. Uh, We have individuals with real challenges, and those challenges are tough to deal with, correct? That's correct. And tell me about that. Um, well, it's great. I um, just recently started working with CSOSA. I started in October, um, and I came from another agency. So being here, um, you know, not only have I been afforded with this opportunity, but I'm able to um, make referrals to the population that I deal with for um, employment services, um, school. Uh, if they have a substance abuse problem, we have um, our own you know, in-house treatment that would handle that, anger management, mental health, um, sex offender treatment, um, pretty much you name it, we have the the resources at our opportunity um, at our hands, you know, to provide them with this opportunity to really help them. Well, I can't let you go too far without asking. I came from another state agency, too, the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency. Our ratio was 125 to 1. Here at the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency, it's routinely less than 50 to 1. Mm-hmm. I mean, here you have an opportunity to do something with the people under our supervision, to do something meaningful. Parole and probation agents throughout the country who are listening to this program are going to 
stare at us through their <laughs> through their radios <laughs> in disbelief because they're saying, "What? You only have fifty to one?" I mean, that's most states don't have that opportunity. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask you what state you came from, but is it a big difference from wherever you came from here to the court services and offender supervision agency? Yes, it is. And I know this sounds cliche, but I really feel like being here, I can kind of live up to that idea of being an agent of change um, because I do have more time um, to meet with individuals, um, reach out to their families and really get to know um, what's going on to be able to help make a difference in their life. Jasmine, what is your experience? How long have you been with the agency? I've been with the agency since uh, 2011 Mm -hmm. and currently I'm a minimum supervision level uh, officer. Right. And actually my caseload is a little higher than the 50. Right. Higher than the 50. Because you're at the lower level people. Yes. Right. But we do have, like you spoke about, a lot of co-occurrent offenders who have the mental health and the substance abuse um, co-occurrent issues. And so we do specifically with that population deal a lot with uh, referring them out to the services that they need within the community as well. Jasmine, I'm going to continue with you. So what we do as parole and probation agents, community uh, community supervision officers, we have to sit and get into the heart and minds of that individual, in many cases, who is distrustful of you. Um, He's been caught up or she's been caught up in the criminal justice system. They're not particularly seeing you as their friend because you have the ability to send them back into the criminal justice system or send them back into prison. The person does have substance abuse issues, does have mental health issues, does have anger management issues. How do you break through those barriers? Honestly, with a conversation that kind of opens the door to them uh, trusting us with information that may have led to substance abuse issues, Um, showing that we actually care, showing up and being consistent with the information and the resources. Because a lot of my clients will say, I've never had anybody say, you know, this like that before to me in regards to, um, I just want to see you do well. I want to see you here for your family. Mm -hmm. You know, just kind of pulling out those things that motivate them to change within their own um, lives. Because when supervision is over we want to leave the person whole and so um, we open a lot of we break down a lot of the barriers just with conversations with our clients one-on-one and just trying to figure out exactly how we can help show that we can help and then have them own the plan by letting us know what is it that you want to change in your life what is the plan the steps that you're going to do to, to take care of that issue and then we guide them along the way as their officer okay but i i'm, I'm gonna keep hammering away at this because you're all giving me very correct answers <laughs> and i appreciate that but i can't think of anything more difficult to deal with than a person with a 15-year history of heroin abuse I mean, breaking through to that through that 15-year history, that's almost impossible. Look, I've had, especially women under supervision but before these microphones before, telling me, wait a minute, Mr. Sipes, you want me to get through my history of sexual abuse, my substance abuse problem, my mental health issues. You want me to go and get a job even though I don't have any occupational background, and you want me to reunite with my kids? That's impossible. What you're asking me to do is way too much. I can't do all of that. So to the individual under supervision who tells me that they can't do all of that, how do you respond to that? Um, I think it's important, you know, when that's presented um, 
to kind of identify with the client what are their short-term goals and start small, not try to tackle everything at once, work on stabilization issues, um, like I said, the short-term goals, to kind of help them see that there is an end in sight um, when you take baby steps. Rome wasn't built in a day. Yeah. So when you have a 15-year history, for example, that you used of substance abuse, you're not going to tackle that in your first meeting. Right. But can you tackle it in the third or fourth or 15th and 23rd? Caitlin, go ahead. Yes, it's extremely important that we build rapport. And, and doing so is, is, as Jasmine said, you know, being consistent and being fair. Um, but we have, with the, the smaller caseloads, we have a lot of opportunities to use motivational interviewing techniques, mm-hmm. to use cognitive behavioral interventions. Uh, what are, for the uninitiated, what is cognitive behavioral therapy? What are motivational interviewing Okay, techniques? so motivational interviewing, a lot of the times what we're doing when we're trying to get to the root of the problem is to ask open-ended questions. Um, and then to help develop rapport, we're going to... You you know, use reflections and summarize to make sure that the the client that we're dealing with understands that we understand what they're going, maybe not what they're going through, but we understand what their needs are and how they feel about a certain subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, so demonstrating that we're listening, you know, those active listening skills. I'm trying to get them to open up a little bit about themselves. Now, the cognitive behavioral interventions come in um, specifically. A lot of the reasons that they're here um, relate to perhaps a cognitive distortion. That there's a they don't they. Their behaviors are not necessarily um, the the events that they've been through, but their perceptions of the events that they've been through. So we have to try try to figure out and understand why they respond a certain way, why they behave a certain way, and and using that information to try to change the way they think about their experiences. Um, And then, you know, we have the opportunity with these small caseloads to use the evidence-based practices, you know, the time that we we need to really invest in these people. Um, And like you said, you know, we can't, we can't do everything all at once. So the goal is to address one or two individual, one or two action items at a time, mm-hmm. um, and and we determine which ones we're going to start at first. You know, we we know that we need to address stabilization factors um, primarily, but whatever we can get the offender to buy into, they may not be ready to see their kids yet. They may not be ready to go down that path, but they are ready to address substance abuse. So we're going to go that way with them. We kind of let them take ownership of their plan and and build it around what their needs are. Do the three of you fully understand? that we have a national discussion now about change within the criminal justice system. I can't tell you how many articles I come across every day from national publications uh, talking about Senate bills, talking about House bills, talking about um, initiatives on the part of the Department of Justice, initiatives on the part of individual uh, organizations. And every time they're talking about the fundamental change within the criminal justice system, the heart and soul of that fundamental change is you. The heart and soul of that. Uh, never in my 40 years within the criminal justice system have I seen such an emphasis on parole and probation officers. So what they're saying is is that if we're not going to be sending that many people to prison or we're going to let people out of prison earlier, what they're counting on is quality supervision on the part of parole and probation agencies throughout the country. I've spoken with parole and probation folks throughout the United States, and they have said, they're telling me, Leonard, I'm not quite sure with 150 to 1 ratios if we're ready for that type of responsibility. In D.C., are we ready for that? I, I, I believe we are. I, and I, coming from another agency, um, I can say that I, I think that we are ready here, and um, just from you know our um, successful case closures, um, that speaks for itself. Yeah, because success, uh, the great majority of our cases, uh, around two thirds, are uh, closed out successfully, um, and and that has to be due to the the efforts on the part of people like yourselves. Absolutely. I think this agency does a really good job at providing the training that we need in order to better suit our clients. Um, 
when we went to uh, the cognitive behavioral intervention and motivational interviewing, um, adding that more into how we actually manage our caseloads, we were provided with adequate training that really helped us uh, get what it actually is that we need to do with our offenders within the community versus just sanctioning and sending them back and letting that only be our option. It really helped us engage with the offender, get to the core of the issues and the risks that they might have um, and the needs and kind of given us, uh, I would say, like a briefcase of all this information and, and resources and ch- and told us how exactly to do this. And we've seen results, especially with the caseloads that we have in minimum. We've seen results of how we've had clients um, not only be successfully terminated at the end of supervision, but also early terminated because they've done so well in the community. We're one of the very few parole and probation agencies in the United States that controls our own resources. I mean, we have halfway back programs. Uh, we we have our own um, um, structure, our own building. It's huge, um, and where we process hundreds upon hundreds of individuals every year that are struggling uh, on community supervision. Instead of sending them back to prison, we send them back for intensive treatment. Um, so it's weird that we, because we're federally funded with a local mission, the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency, we are in a better position um, than many if not every parole and probation agency in the country to do uh, the job that we're, that people want us to do, to both serve the individual under supervision and at the same time protect public safety. Yeah. I just came back from the American Association, I'm sorry, the American Probation and Parole Association's National Training Institute and networking with other individuals from around the country who do exactly what we do. It's, a, it's amazing to me what wide range of difference that we have between our agency and the way other people are doing things. Certain things like motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral interventions seem to be standard across the board at this point. But to speak, you know, at CSOSA, we have specialized units. We have a women's unit. We have a sex offender unit. We have a domestic violence. We have many different units so that we can target specific needs mm-hmm. uh, in specific populations. And a lot of other agencies don't have that opportunity. They may have a sex offender come in at 8 o'clock and then a domestic violence offender come in at nine um, and then a general supervision a young adult right. so it, it the resources that we have and the opportunities we have are 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 much greater than than some of our counterparts in other jurisdictions. Yeah, the individual teams, domestic violence, young offenders, uh, women under supervision. I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, Mental health Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. is a big one. Um, uh, uh, Drug court, um, the the, the more, uh, about 45% of our populations at the highest levels of supervision. So we have an immense amount of contact. In the state that I came from, intensive supervision was two face-to-face contacts a month. At the court services and offender supervision agency, they could have eight contacts a month just with you, and that's leaving out the treatment people, and that's leaving out coming in to be drug tested. So we have an immense amount of contact with the people under supervision. And we're given that opportunity because of our... Our, our, folk, our different focuses with our teams and having that um, smaller caseload. I find this to be a fascinating conversation. I do want to come back and talk about the stresses and the successes and how you personally feel about what it is that you do. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, we're doing a radio show today on parole and probation officers and their contributions to public safety. We are celebrating pretrial probation and parole supervision week in conjunction with the American Probation and Parole Association. Their motto, a force for positive change, is something that we embrace. The three individuals 
individuals are from my agency, Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency. It's Caitlin Forche. Uh, she is a, commu- a supervisory community supervision officer. Jamie Thompson, a community supervision officer. And Jasmine St. John, again, a community supervision officer. What we call parole and probation agents in the District of Columbia, uh, Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency. We are a federal agency, federal independent branch, um, uh, executive branch uh, agency uh, here in the nation's capital. You know, ladies, this has got to be one of the most challenging things that you've ever done. I mean, I can't think of anything, including my law enforcement days. Here's my law enforcement day. I get a call. I go in. I resolve it or arrest the person or deal with it through a non-arrest, and I leave. You have got to deal with this individual and their family and their kids for years in some cases. I mean, so for me, it's a 10-minute intervention. For you, it's the next two or three years. That's got to be immensely stressful. Absolutely. Um, However, weeks like this that we are given the opportunity to kind of relieve some of that stress while at work and then the initiatives of the Health and Wellness Committee to kind of have some opportunity throughout uh, the year to also get out and relieve some stress does help it helps a whole with lot. the burnout <laughs> yeah i mean i mean do you go home and kick the dog and throw uh, throw uh, the glass up against the wall you know I, it's a stressful job it is I and mean, it, you're dealing with people with drug addictions and mental health issues and you know a woman we had a, the women's conference a couple of years ago where a woman stood up in the middle of the hall in the middle of our gathering and said i and a woman that i live with last night had a fight and she threatened me and my child, and I had to pull a knife to keep her away from my child and me. And so now I'm homeless. I don't have any place to live, and I've got these problems. What are you all going to do for me? And dead silence filled the room for the next 10 seconds. I mean, that's the reality of who it is that you deal with. When I first started at CSOSA, I I was on the sex offender unit, and I had accidentally left my cell phone on overnight. I got a call at 2.30 in the morning with an offender who was calling from a payphone, saying that he was going to jump off a bridge. 2.30 in the morning, woken up from a sound sleep. The amount, the amount of stress that that puts on you, knowing that you are responsible. This man was considering ending his life, and the person he chose to call was me. There you go. And I had no, very, hardly any experience in, as a probation or parole agent. Um, so it was it was alarming to me that somebody that I had affected, he he at least trusted me enough with that information that he didn't end up, you know, we were able to engage in that conversation. He didn't end up hurting himself at all. Um, but it, to know that, that I was on his mind when he was thinking about okay. making such a serious decision, you know, it, it, it is stressful. There's secondary trauma that comes with it. And you have... Every day, the decisions that we make affect people's lives, for good or for bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to, you know, that's a tremendous responsibility that we have. But then we also have stories. Um, one of my officers recently, I was doing an observation, and he was talking to a young a young adult who was just about ready to graduate from high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, at one point, he obviously, it didn't look as though he was going to be able to graduate from high school. Now, he has great family support in terms of his grandmother. Um, but he was, one of the things he was struggling with was trying to figure out who was going to get his tickets for his high school graduation. Mm. And his father, who hadn't been in his life at all, all of a sudden wanted to, was recently coming back in his life and mm-hmm. wanted a ticket to graduation. And he decided 
not to give his father a ticket to graduation because he had saved that last ticket for his community supervision officer, who he felt was more of an asset in his life and more of a motivation in his life to complete his high school education than his own father was. I spoke to a community supervision officer and the person under his supervision one time jointly. And he told me, the person under supervision said, you know what, this individual is the only person in my life that I can turn to, to talk to, and to have a decent conversation. This is the only person in my life who cares. Now think about that for a second. A parole and probation agent is the only person in my life who cares. And because of that, I take my meds, and because of that, I don't screw up. And because of that, um, I do the right things because I do not want to violate the trust that I've built up with with your community supervision officer, who is my community supervision officer. That's profound. That is. And it's, again, a huge responsibility. But on the flip side, that's very rewarding to know that, you know, in our position, we were able to make an impact on a person's like on a person's life because oftentimes we are the only positive role model that they have, and so it's very important for us, you know, to always make sure that we practice that anti-criminal modeling um, for them um, since we are a role model. And in terms of talking, I mean, uh, Jasmine, the whole idea is to give that individual an opportunity to talk to somebody who who truly does care. And the thing that impresses me about parole and probation agents, community supervision officers, is that by and large, we do care. By and large, these aren't throwaway human beings. Now, I understand they're frustrating, and I understand it's difficult, and I understand (laughs) it drives you crazy at times, but, you know, most, if not... 85% of the people that I've encountered who work for parole and probation agencies genuinely do care about whether or not that person does well or not. Absolutely. Um, When you give your offender or your client the opportunity just to talk and just ask, you know, how are you doing today or what's going on in your life or what's changed, so many things can come as a response that you never know where that conversation is going to lead and you never know if perhaps just within that conversation, one day they can say they're absolutely fine, but then you have this deep, long conversation about something that might have happened recently, and it'll open the door for so many things that they were you know, pushing, pushing back um, for years. Mm-hmm. And that would open the door for that trust to be built, to talk about that. Um, because I, I feel at least a lot of my population really don't have people who just pause to say, how is your day right. going? Right. They're either back in the community and no one wants to be bothered with them because of one issue or the other um, or employment, lack of employment or funds, or they're being pulled in so many directions. They just don't have time to really pause and just get some stuff off their chest until mm-hmm. they get to our office. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a huge responsibility to hear that information. The things that we hear, the stories that we hear about the trauma that happens in their day-to-day life. I cannot imagine some of the things that they have gone through just getting up. It's almost one of those things that just, I'm surprised that all you are is on supervision because of the things that have happened in their day-to-day life. Right. We deal with individuals that that carry a lot of life trauma. Absolutely. Um, I did years ago in terms of uh, volunteer counseling and uh, a person who was 
going to take their life and ended up very intimately involved in with that person's life on a professional basis and conversations. And there are certain times the person's telling me stuff where I'm saying to myself, I'm not quite sure I want to hear this. I'm not quite, this is way too deep. I did not know we were going there. Um, and, and then it becomes more and then it becomes more. And there's a certain right. point where you as a, as a professional, you're, you have this opportunity to break through all of this and help that person. But at the same time, it, it, even though we have low caseloads, it's still 50 people telling you these stories and 50 people communicating with you like this. And sometimes when you go home, I'm assuming you feel like the world is riding on your shoulders. That's why it's very important to find balance in your life. Um, I was just going to say, I can't even watch the news because half the time <laughs> I am so inundated at work with stories that if I watch the news or law and order, anything for recreation, I'm thinking about work because it's like, oh, that reminds me of so-and-so. Yes. Or, oh, I saw them come through my email today or yes. something <laughs> reminds you of work. Yes. And if then on the flip one side. more episode of Intervention. <laughs> yeah. No, right. thank you. Yeah. But then on the flip side, you're watching these, you're like, oh, Please don't be one that belongs to me. Please don't be one that belongs to me. <laughs> but, 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 you know, it's, it's sitting before these microphones in terms of talking to women under supervision. And I've done that probably six or seven times, and I've been to a couple group interventions. And I have three women tell me similar stories about being sexually abused before they were 13 years old and, and talk about who did it and how it affected them for the rest of their lives and how it created a spiral that got them involved in drugs and mental health. I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm saying, this is the most intense conversation I've ever had in my life. That's the sort of conversation you go through every single day. Absolutely. And one client comes to mind um, who is a female and who also has a mental health issue and a substance abuse issue that started from sexual abuse. And when you start to factor in, okay, well, you're still using, and these are things that we have to address as far as our, you know, public safety. At the end of the day, though, you have to ask those questions. What is going on that you're currently using and things of that nature? And out comes this story of, um, I'm taking care of my grandkids and I shouldn't, and it's overbearing and things of that nature. And it's all leading. So then you're starting to wrestle with now, if I take you off the street, who's going to watch the grandkids? And if I take you off the street, you know, what are your, what are your daughters going to do? Because they're depending upon the little bit of money that you get for disability or whatever else that they may be getting money for. So a lot of their life stories and factors into pretty much how we supervise their case, because Mm -hmm. Those are the things that you have to consider all the time at the same time before or in addition to writing a violation report. What is the most important ingredient in terms of being a good parole and probation agent, a good community supervision officer? What must you have? Patience. That's exactly what I was going to say. Patience. (laughs) Because it is difficult. You say, you know, in addition to hearing all these stories and having to find that work-life balance, um, there are sometimes that phone rings and I look over and I see who's calling. I don't want to answer it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, there are so many, some of these clients where they call nonstop or they call and every time, you know, or they only call when they really need something, but when they really need something, it's a lot of time out of your day. Yes. And it's one of the things I love about this field is that no two days are alike. Mm-hmm. It's also what I hate about this field. <laughs> no two days <laughs> are alike. You can't plan a day. You can't, you know, things come up and you're constantly, it's crisis management 
every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if so-and-so is now skating, you know, and they're, they're, they're moving on their way, you have another offender where you're just at the start. You've got to be on every single day, correct? Absolutely. I mean, there's no such thing as having that bad day. We all have them. Uh, I have them. You have them. But when you get to that office, and re- I want to remind the public that these individuals are out in the community. They're not just sitting and writing a desk. They're out constantly doing home visits, um, uh, interviewing this individual on a surprise basis, um, uh, sometimes going to their place of employment. Uh, so you guys are all always out in the community so you're always interacting with people um that you know are you ever afraid by the way good question do you think good question and not so much okay because of the rapport that we build with our offenders at least the ones that i have um i've never been in a situation where i felt i was afraid of my client um just to be honest i'm in you know in agreement with jasmine all right You've got, to, you've got to travel some pretty tough neighborhoods by yourself. Or with a partner. But, I mean, you have the support of MPD here. Um, the Metropolitan Police Department, yes. Absolutely. So we know um, the officers who also patrol our area. And at the same time, because you are so much in their lives and see them so much, if it comes to a situation where we're about to walk into a dangerous situation, you'll have offenders who call you and say, not today because it's not safe over here okay. and things of that nature. Or they'll walk you to your car. Yeah. Right. I actually look had someone you. walk me to my right, car so everybody's working with each other everybody's exchanging information everybody's cooperating mm-hmm. they're looking out for you you're looking out i for would them. say for the, more, most, for the most part, most of most part. there are some that don't want you to come to their house period they don't care to see you there they don't want to have a conversation with you you say goodbye and they hope they never have to see you again um but for the most part you know being able to develop rapport really you know really aids in that feeling of safety i think it's been a fascinating conversation i think that the people of washington dc and throughout the united states owe a debt of respect to parole and probation agents community supervision officers you guys really are on the front lines you really are the people who we depend upon to protect our safety and to at the same time do the fair administration of justice in terms of the people that we supervise ladies and gentlemen it's been an honor for me today uh caitlin for um she is a supervisory community supervision officer jamie thompson community supervision officer and jasmine st john again community supervision officer the program today was focusing on parole and probation agents and their contributions to public safety. We're celebrating pretrial probation and parole supervision week here in the District of Columbia in conjunction with the American Probation and Parole Association and their motto, a force for positive change. Ladies and gentlemen, this is DC Public Safety. We appreciate your comments. We even appreciate your criticisms and we want everybody to have themselves a very pleasant day. 